this is Pastor Nate Ward with Open Door Church, and I wanted to take a moment to welcome you to our podcast. It's my personal prayer that you would be encouraged and encountered by the Holy Spirit and challenged by His Word. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you're doing, and thank you for what you're going to continue to do. Thank you for this church. And I'm asking, as we dive into your word this morning, Lord, that it wouldn't be just something passive that we listen to and and maybe agree with, but Lord, we're asking that it would transform us. Lord, we're asking for the power of your word to encounter our heart and change our lives. Lord, because we want to be like you. We want to look like you, and we want to make you proud. Lord, we want, to, we want to please you with every aspect of our lives for your glory and your fame. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. We've been slowly making our way through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and I've been really just ecstatic, excited about going through the teaching of Jesus, right? Um, I don't think uh, in any way, shape, or form I can teach what Jesus tried to teach any better, um, but it is something that is so impactful, so pertinent, and so important. Uh, I, I don't think you could, uh, I don't think you could argue with the fact that this is the most important sermon ever preached, because Jesus is the one that preached it, and we get to walk through it together as a church, and it's been exciting. But we made a little pit stop in Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, where we parked at his teaching on prayer. Right, uh, we're familiar with his teaching on prayer. Uh, it's often referred to as the Lord's Prayer or the Model Prayer, and uh, it's something that a lot of us are familiar with. Um, but we've parked here in uh, just kind of studying it a little bit more in depth, really taking on what Jesus has to say about prayer, because um, it's pretty important, right? How many of you guys know prayer is a big deal? It is. Uh, Jesus did it. He likes us to do it, and uh, I don't think there is any better way to learn how to pray than following Jesus' teaching on it. Um, so last week, we started to dive into Jesus' teaching on prayer, and I had it broken up into uh, a two-part teaching, and I made it through like the first six words of the Lord's Prayer. And so I have resigned to the fact that this might go slower than anticipated, but I'm okay with that um, because I simply want to really cherish the words of Jesus here. Um, And we talked last week about our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Right? That's where we stopped. We didn't make it further than that, the kind of the opening line. We talked about the communal aspect of this prayer, how it's relational and it invites us together as a family. You cannot pray this prayer with a singular mindset, right? You can't just say, my father who is in heaven. We see Jesus really recognizing the whole community of the brotherhood of the saints when he says, our father. It's this inclusive thing um, that we talk about with the relational aspect of the family of God. And it inevitably ended up us talking about hallowed be thy name. And it's this prevailing theme 
that the primary end goal of all things would be for the eventual glorification of God. We talked about the preeminence of Jesus. We talked about the necessity of the human heart to revere God in majesty, to hallow his name, to revere him as holy, to regard him as sacred. And that was it. <laughs> That's how far we got. And I, I, had, a, I had a good, uh, just good feedback um, from a friend uh, come up to me after the sermon. I was like, that was good. That was awesome. But what the heck does it mean to be holy? <laughs> and I realized we didn't really talk about that. I didn't really define that. I didn't really go into depth on what that actually is. And I felt like that deserved an explanation. And that uh, has a uh, that's a valid question, right? A lot of the times we use this Christianese language and we use big words and I can be very guilty of it because that's kind of the, the world and the realm I live in. But uh, if you really sit down and think about it, like what does it actually mean to be holy? Um, it's kind of hard to describe. It's a characteristic. It's a trait of God. It's, a, it's this theme throughout scripture that is a, a little bit transcendent, right? It's a little bit hard to grasp. And I think it would be very appropriate this morning as we reflect on the hallowedness of God's name, to regard his name as holy, to regard his character um, as holy, uh, to really define holy. And I thought, well, let's start with the Hebrew. Is that okay? Uh, so the Hebrew word for holy is kadosh. Um, and I'm probably uh, butchering the actual pronunciation of that, um, kadosh. Um, and the Greek uh, variant of that is hagios. Um, and I don't pretend to be a Hebrew or Greek scholar, but one thing that these two words both agree on is the definition of holy. They're almost identical in how they, uh, on how they define this word in the original language, and it just means to be set apart, to be separate or sacred. Um, and when we call God holy, we recognize him as someone or something that is completely different. Um, and I, I wrote this down that we often think about holiness as things that we do or don't do. And I want to be clear because behavior does have an aspect of that, uh, of holiness in it. Like if you're going to be holy like Jesus is holy, your behavior is naturally going to reflect that. But more so than holiness being re relegated to just a list of do's and don'ts, um, holiness throughout Scripture, uh, it refers to something that is unique and set apart um, rather than common. So when we're talking about God being holy, it's not just that he's without sin. Um, the reason why he's holy is because he's completely different. He's not tainted by sin. But that's not just what makes him holy. Because he's holy, he's different. He's otherworldly. He's something that, that's, that's hard for us to relate to you in humanity in that sense because he's without it. He's without sin and he's perfect in splendor. And that means that he has a high place in our lives. Um, to regard God as holy means that we treat him and recognize him as uh, worthwhile. <laughs> and it, he's different. He's set apart. Um, I'm going to use a very poor example here because we're talking about the worth, the preeminence of Jesus, and really what holy actually is. Holy was a word that uh, 
that the Hebrews started using to ascribe to God because there wasn't another word to describe him. <laughs> they, they, had to, they had to come up with this terminology that, I mean, he's different. He's not like us. He's not, uh, he's not tainted by sin. And uh, I use this example, and hopefully this is helpful to someone. It's a poor example. I recognize that. But it was the best example that I could kind of really use to relate this in simple terms. I sold my Jeep recently. Um, for those of you who know me, I had a pretty excessive Jeep. Uh, it was, you know, a four-door, Rubicon, lifted. It was, uh, it was a really nice vehicle that I stole, basically, off of eBay a number of years ago. <laughs> and uh, the thing about this Jeep was that it was too nice. It was way too nice. I mean, it was fully loaded. It had leather. It had all the fancy stuff in it. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure when I first bought it, I, I did the math on what it was actually worth, um, and it was nothing even close to what I paid for it. Um, but it was worth like $80,000 uh, because of all the stuff that was done with it. It was a crazy story. Um, I don't drive excessive, expensive vehicles just for the fun of it. It was one of those like too-good-to-be-true deals that was actually true. Um, but the thing with it was, is I, I've had a number of Jeeps. I'm on my sixth Jeep now. Um, and I like to use them to do Jeep things, like put them in precarious situations that they shouldn't be in uh, for a sane human. But I couldn't really push myself to do it with this really nice vehicle because I was consistently worried about tipping it over or ruining it and realizing, man, this, is, this thing has just too much value and too much worth. I just can't treat it like a common car. I kept it cleaner than any, and I still wheeled it, I still did stuff in it, but I, I wasn't willing to use it the way that a Jeep should be used. And so I sold it and uh, uh, bought an old beater Jeep that already has some body damage to it, some hail damage and whatnot that I can drive on a trail and not worried about breaking it. But the difference here is, this, is, uh, is in regard to the fact that my old beater Jeep right here, I'm not as careful, I'm not as cautious with it. I don't revere it or regard it the same way that I did the other one where I was careful in how I approached it because it had a greater perceived worth to me than this one that if I roll it, it's not gonna be a big deal. I mean, it's, I don't want to do that, but it's not going to be as hard of a deal. Does that make sense? Uh, do you guys see what the point I'm trying to make? And so you, you tie it together. Our perceived worth of God is important. To have high regard of him is, is the difference between what scripture would be uh, talking about, how we regard things as either holy or common. Leviticus 10.10 tells us that we must decide for ourselves, we must distinguish amongst ourselves uh, between the holy and the common, the clean and the unclean. And it's not just a matter of, uh, so when we're talking about God as holy, we're recognizing that he's not common. And too many of us have a problem with treating God as this common thing in our lives. Yes, he should, be, he should be frequent, he should be involved in our lives, but we can never come before God with this low view of him just being this extra thing that exists in our life. 
And so when we're talking about hallowed be thy name, when we're talking about the hallowing or to, to keep God's name holy, and we're praying for that, I believe we're praying for that in our lives, it's that God would stay seated at the first place. And I didn't stick to my notes there, and it probably would have made more sense if I did. Um, but I just, I really wanted to reemphasize this idea of holy being separate, to, to not just be treated as common. And uh, that's important because God isn't just another thing we add to our lives, but he's worth us radically rearranging every little detail and aspect of our lives for his glory. Does that make sense? Cool. Well, uh, I'm going to get to the meat of what we're talking about here in verses 9 and 10. And uh, I just want to read uh, Jesus's teaching and his model prayer here. Um, we remember that uh, Jesus was praying in Luke 11. His disciples saw Jesus's, Jesus praying and they decided, hey, we want to pray like that to Jesus. Would you teach us how to pray? And so I like to say one of the first prayers recorded from the disciples is, Lord, would you teach us how to pray? And I think that's a pretty good prayer and a pretty great place to start. And uh, I want that to sink in because Jesus is the one with the greatest prayer life to ever walk the earth, right? Uh, you can argue with me about that, but you're wrong. Um, Jesus knew what it meant to pray. And the disciples recognized that the power that he operated in here on the earth was correlated to the intimate life of prayer that Jesus lived. And they wanted that kind of relationship with God the Father. And so they asked Jesus, Lord, would you teach us how to pray? Because we've seen how the Pharisees pray. We've seen how, how people pray in Judaism. And we've seen how the religious system prays. But we're not experiencing the same power or the intimacy that you have when you pray. So, Lord, would you teach us how to pray? And he responds to this in this light. He says, in this manner, therefore pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forget our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. How many of you guys, and this is not like a, if, you're, if you don't, but uh, this is a, a pretty familiar uh, prayer passage of scripture. Um, some of you, maybe if you grew up in the Catholic tradition, memorized this uh, pretty early on. Anybody here have just this memorized by heart from how many times you've prayed it and said it? I do. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing, but it's, it's something that's familiar. Um, I've, heard, uh, I've heard record, I heard record of it this week of, um, you know, a baseball team, uh, a high school baseball team that would pray this prayer with the coach before any game. You know, uh, I've been in services and traditions where this is recited just as a as kind of a, a ritualistic thing. And uh, of course, I think maybe the most common thought is within, you know, the Catholic Church with uh, confession and penance. Uh, I'm not Catholic. I've never been Catholic, but my understanding of it is 
that uh, you can be told to say so many Our Fathers or so many Hail Marys uh, in an expression of the contrition of your heart in terms of repentance. That's right, right, John? I know you used to be Catholic, right? That's something that, 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 uh, that they do. And I just, I, I was thinking about this. It's like, this is in like exact opposite of what Jesus was warning about in his teaching on prayer. In like his preamble, like his precursor to this actual prayer, he, he warns them to not, uh, when you pray, don't offer up or heap up empty praises or empty phrases like the Gentiles do, is what he says in verse 7, right preceding this. And he's talking about like, it's not just enough to say things before God and you're not going to be heard by God because of your many words, right? But when you pray, it's got to be a matter of the heart, right? There has to be this connection. And so I want to be clear, uh, this isn't, when we're talking about the model prayer here, just repeating what Jesus said here, well, I think that that's a great start, is not what he's getting at. <laughs> and I, I'm fearful that because of the familiarity of these words, that we would miss the heart of what Jesus is trying to get us to grasp. I don't know about you, but a lot of the times I can grow too comfortable or too familiar with something and actually miss what's important about it. Um, you know, I can grow too comfortable just, Adam and I had this conversation just like two days ago about uh, driving. Anybody do this in Pagosa? Like you're driving somewhere and you just naturally go to Walmart or City Market or something because that's just how you naturally go and you're, you miss your turnoff or you miss your exit just because it was something different, something new, and you missed where you were actually supposed to go because you're so set in a routine. Anybody? I do this all the time. Um, I used to work at Pizza Hut, like when I first moved here, and still every once in a while when I'm going to City Market to pick something up, I'll accidentally turn and go into Pizza Hut because that was just like my everyday thing. We don't even have a Pizza Hut anymore. That's how long ago that was. <laughs> we haven't had a Pizza Hut for years. <laughs> um, but I would, I still do it. And that's one of the things that I think can be dangerous about scripture that we're familiar with is that we just kind of grow in and we go on autopilot and we forget that the word of God is living and it's active and it's sharper than a two-edged sword. And I just don't want us to ever grow too comfortable or familiar with it. I, I want us to know a passage. Like I want us to spend a lot of time in it. I want it to be like, uh, I, I want it to be something that we know, but I don't want us to ever approach it in such a way that we just gloss over it and there's nothing new to be revealed to us or old to be revealed to us that we just forgot. Make sense? Cool. And so we're going to jump into this. Uh, and I'm going to try to tackle verse 10. <laughs> I don't know if I'll make it all the way just through verse 10 today, um, but I'm at least going to make it partial of the way through verse 10, because even in prayer this morning, I just kept writing things down, and uh, I couldn't stop just writing things down that I felt like the Lord wanted me to share. And then even at the end of prayer, uh, I felt like there were other things that, man, I need to say this, I need to say this, that I just didn't write down. And so, Father, I'm just asking that you'd use me, that you'd speak through me, Lord, that it wouldn't be confusing, that it wouldn't just be uh, good thoughts or rabbit trails. Lord, I'm asking that your word would be concise, Lord, and that you'd receive glory because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, cool. So the first, uh, the first uh, verse that I want to tackle is this prayer of Jesus, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're familiar with this. I love to pray this all the time. These are the last two of three petitions that break up uh, kind of the structure of the Lord's Prayer. The first petition is that God's name would be hallowed or would be regarded as holy. The second is that his kingdom would come. The third is that his will would be done. And those first three make up uh, kind of a structure in the Lord's Prayer that, do, that relate directly to God in God's will and God's omnipotence and his glory. Whereas the second half deal more with our interpersonal relationships, our personal needs, our need for forgiveness that kind of conclude and round out this model prayer. And so there's six petitions in total that we're going to highlight. Um, and my initial idea was not to take like a week on each one, um, but I'm not going to rush it either. And so we're just going to, we're going to try to get through this at the pace that the Lord will allow it. Amen. And so uh, we're, we're focusing on the second and third petition here this morning and just the way that this is structured, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done. I've made this statement before that God's kingdom is established when God's people do God's will God's way. And uh, I, uh, I would love to take credit for that. But in all honesty, I could not remember where I first heard that or where I first started saying that or where I first wrote it down. I actually found it in an old journal from my time in ministry school. And it's kind of just been something that I've had going on. And I asked Adam this morning in pre-service prayer, like, man, you've known me for a long time, longer than almost any other person. Man, where would I have heard this at? He's like, oh, that's an easy one. That was Bobby Wilson. And uh, except for he didn't say God's kingdom would be established. He talked about revival being the way, uh, the, the revival um, being God's people doing God's will, God's way. And I think we could probably trace it back to somebody else, even after Bobby Wilson, um, who was a pastor that we served under a number of years ago. But the, the truth still remains that I believe God's kingdom revival, whatever kind of wordage that you want to use, awakening, happens when we, as God's people, fulfill God's will in his way, in his timing, in conjunction, in fellowship, in, uh, in partnership with him. And that's so important and pertinent to what we get when we pray about this prayer, because I think sometimes we cannot apply this prayer to us when we're praying that God would your kingdom come, God would your will be done, it's immediately like, God would your will be done over here in somebody else's life, God would your kingdom come over here. But when we really take an inward focus, for me this started to change things uh, collectively as the body of Christ, when we say, God would your name be hallowed, Lord would you be regarded as holy in my church, in my family, in my life. Lord, would, would your will be done in my life? Would your kingdom come and would there be a representation of it in my life? Things begin to shift and things begin to change in a mighty way. I love the way that Michael, Michael, I, I don't know uh, if Mike Pickle's first name is actually Michael, but uh, 
Mike, <laughs> Mike Bickle, uh, he's, a, he's a Bible teacher in Kansas City, uh, partnership with the House of Prayer, pretty cool dude, um, has some awesome teaching that I love, but he says this, that we ask for his kingdom to increase on the earth. The kingdom is the place where his word is obeyed, his will is done, and his power expressed. And I love that simple definition of what the kingdom of God is. So when we're asking, God, would your kingdom come? We're asking that his word would be obeyed. We're asking that his power be expressed and that his will would be done, which is what we're going to talk about here right after this. But there's, there's this idea that uh, we can ask God, would your kingdom come here in Pagosa? Would you be glorified? Would your word be adhered? And it's not just enough that we pray that for the culture. It's not just enough that we pray that for our nation or for our community without first praying it for ourselves. Because I want the word of God to be followed closely in my life. I want the will of God to be fulfilled in my everyday walk just as much, uh, I want actually more, than I do if it's fulfilled in a cultural representation out there. Does that make sense? And so uh, I love this. That, and I loved how he said, and his power being expressed. Back in the day uh, when I was a youth pastor, it was crazy, and Adam was living in my closet, we painted these awesome banners that we hung up here in the church that were pretty ridiculous. They were really metal and like grungy, and I thought they were so cool. And it said, wake the living on one side and raise the dead on the other, because that was, that was uh, our hardcore youth ministry. Like that was what I felt like the mandate of God was for us, that we would wake the living. We would call people out of spiritual complacency. We would raise the dead, that people would be raised to life in Christ. And I mean, we were, oh yeah, we were metal. It was cool. And then uh, I put 1 Corinthians 4.20 on the bottom of the banner. And uh, 1 Corinthians 4.20 says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but a matter of power. It's not just about saying the right things, but it's about power. It's about signs and wonders and demonstrations of the, king, uh, of, of the kingdom's power is, what, uh, is a, a way that Paul would reference it. And I thought, man, we were so cool. I was like, yeah. And kids were like, dude, I love the banners. And I thought it was because, you know, like we had awesome, powerful scripture references. And it looked really cool because we spent a lot of time working on them. And it was really just because the scripture reference was 420 and we had a bunch of potheads. Um, <laughs> that's, we didn't have a bunch of potheads. I just remember having that conversation with like two guys. And they're like, oh, that's a cool reference. And they didn't get it. Um, but true fact, when uh, I first became the youth pastor here uh, over 10 years ago now, uh, uh, people, there was a rumor running around town uh, that we were like selling pot and that we were doing pot with students and stuff like that. We never really figured out where that was. I've never smoked marijuana and I definitely never did it with students um, just to clear the air if anybody was still like wondering about that. But there's this matter <laughs> of the kingdom of God being represented by the power of God. And so when we're asking, God, would your kingdom come? I believe there's an invitation for the supernatural. Because where the kingdom of God is established, I believe scripturally 
that there is supposed to be representation of the supernatural aspect of the kingdom of God associated with it. And I can prove it to you in scripture. Let's, let's turn to Matthew 12. We'll look at Jesus himself. Beginning in verse two, it says, then a demon possessed man who was blind and couldn't speak. So this guy was messed up. He was demon possessed. He was sick. He was blind. He couldn't speak. He was brought to Jesus and he healed the man so that he could both speak and see. The crowd was amazed and asked, could it be that Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah? But when the Pharisees heard about the miracle, they said, no wonder he can cast out demons. He gets his power from Satan, from Beelzebub, the prince of demons. As Jesus knew their thoughts, Jesus knew their thoughts and replied, any kingdom divided by civil war is doomed. A town or family splintered by feuding with fighting against himself or by feuding, will fall apart. And if Satan is casting out Satan, he is divided and fighting against himself. His own kingdom will not survive. And if I am empowered by Satan, what about your own exorcists? They cast out demons too. So they will condemn you for what you have said. But if I am casting out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. Hmm. For you who... For who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? Only someone who is stronger, someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. But you need to understand here, there is an association of the kingdom of God. And when Jesus says that the kingdom of God has arrived among you, that the kingdom of God is here, it's in direct association with the power of his spirit and the performing of miracles. I'm not, guys, I don't like to get caught up in this like crazy, like uh, magic show kind of trick, but there is an aspect about praying for the kingdom of God where there should be a healthy expectation that there would be the miraculous. I have, I've seen it, I've experienced, I've tasted it, I've walked it. And I, I can't wonder how many people are walking and searching, uh, searching for Jesus and they're searching for something transformative and they fill our pews on a consistent basis and they come into churches on a consistent basis and they're expecting to find the kingdom and the power of God on display and they get empty rhetoric instead. But we understand that the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but it's a matter of power. Amen? It's something that is to be demonstrated. It's something to be displayed. How else would you say when Jesus gives the Great Commission, it's something that we love to celebrate and we talk about. We know that we're to, uh, to go into all the world and preach Jesus and make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We know that, but if you continue on and mark if you continue on at the end of Mark, uh, we read this. And these signs will accompany those who believe. Do you believe in Jesus? Then these signs is what Jesus says will follow those that believe. He's saying this will be evidence of those who believe in me. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. Those are Jesus's words. Those aren't like some crazy charismatic preachers like interpretation. We're not going to bust out the snakes and like, like just throw them around here in church this morning or anything weird like that. But there is the expectation, friends, 
that the Spirit of God would move. There is the expectation, friends, that where the kingdom of God is present, that his spirit would be active. And it saddens me to know that the state of of most people's relationship with God is they see this as a far-fetched reality that is unattainable. It's reserved for the super spiritual and the elite and those that have, you know, fasted for the last 40 days and it's just not, it's just not obtainable. But I want to tell you, friends, I believe that the Holy Spirit is active, is evident, and wants to empower you to help bring the kingdom of God about the earth. So when we're asking, Lord, would your kingdom come? I believe it's asking for spirit-powered enablement. I believe it's inviting the Holy Spirit into the everyday life. And I'm going to talk a lot more about this. But I, I just, I so desire, friends, that it wouldn't be just something that we talk about. That it wouldn't just be something that we pray in a prayer, but that we would understand the weight of what Jesus is praying here. That if his kingdom were to come, that there are aspects that are uncomfortable that come with it. There are things that might stretch what you're familiar with. And I believe where God is taking us, I I believe this, and I'm not here just trying to be like some weird tutti-frutti guy, but I believe that the miraculous is so closely associated with the establishment of the kingdom of God that it can't be something that we sleep on. It can't be something that we just pass over. But it should be something that we're looking for, that we're expecting, because Jesus himself associates the miraculous with the arrival of the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom is manifest in part in this age. I need you to understand that. But it happens in full at the return of Jesus when he comes to establish his eternal kingdom, that is something that happens. And we know that there are scriptural examples of us praying, Lord Jesus, come quickly. <laughs> Lord Jesus, would you come establish your kingdom? I do not, and while that, that may play a part in this, the primary, the primary role that we read about here in Jesus' messaging and Jesus' teaching is that the kingdom of God was at hand. The kingdom of God was near, or even that what we just read, the kingdom of God was among you. The kingdom of God was present, not just something that was to come. It's this already, but not yet kind of weird dichotomy that is hard to wrap your mind around. But I believe what Jesus was referencing here was talking about a kingdom. And when he's praying, God, would your kingdom come? He's talking about the here and now, not just at the end of time when he comes to establish his eternal reign forever and ever and ever and ever. And so when we're praying, God, would your kingdom come? I believe it's something that is associated with right now that can happen. Um, I believe that there is this aspect of the kingdom of God, God's people doing God's will, God's way, that is appropriate for now. It's a, it's a partial. It's not the full, but it's a partial. If that makes sense, I realize it can be confusing. Um, but with that in mind, with it being accessible here now, that's what he preached in Matthew 4. We talked about that. Jesus, his primary message when he began to preach was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. 
or the kingdom of God is within your grasp, is within your reach. It's accessible, right? Um, And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is teaching us. It's teaching followers of Jesus what repentance fleshed out actually looks like. It teaches us how to be ambassadors of the kingdom. It really, it really revolves around this concept of repentance paving the way for entrance into the kingdom of God. And I believe that with, I believe that so strongly that to pray that his kingdom to come is to pray that repentance would transpire amongst the people. That it would exist first and foremost primarily in my life. That repentance would take root. That the kingdom of God might come. But also uh, that Jesus would be well represented by his ambassadors and that many would come into the family of God. I believe to pray that the kingdom of God to come means an advancement of God's kingdom within the community, within the world, where biblical repentance is transpiring on a regular basis. We talk about revival. We talk about signs and wonders. And I, I mentioned those things first because I believe that those are good things. They're, they're markings. But the greatest miracle that we could ever encounter, that we could ever celebrate, that we could ever experience is that of a transformed life, of a repentant heart, renewed and regenerated by Jesus right? We understand that. And a mark of a healthy church and a mark of the kingdom of God coming is that lost people would be found, is that people's lives would be transformed by the gospel. And if we're going to pray like Jesus, that his kingdom would come, what we're praying for is that repentance would transpire and that people would enter into the kingdom and enter into the family of God. And you cannot disassociate and you cannot break these two, uh, these two parts of this verse up and just preach one aspect, that the kingdom of heaven, that the kingdom of God would come, Lord, thy kingdom come, and then I couldn't go on and split it up and try to preach your will be done next week, even though we could talk forever about God's will and like his predetermined will and, and all this stuff and his sovereign will and his permissive will and all this stuff. That's not the conversation we're going to get into this morning because I don't have time or the energy to argue with people. And so <laughs> if I'm just being 100% honest, but what I do want to talk about here is in the context of God's kingdom coming, being established through the gate of repentance, is we have to understand something about his will. The prayer that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven is that God's will would be accomplished in us and through us and that it would, be, it would happen the same way that as if he commanded his angels in heaven to do it meaning that it would be fulfilled in partnership with him, not just forced, but that it would be executed completely, joyfully, and immediately. I, I need you to understand this. We, I, I have no issue with the sovereignty of God and the fact that he is powerful and he can do what he wants. But you need to understand this, that God does not 100% all the time see his will fulfilled. I know that there's different schools of thought. I know that, that people, before you throw stones at me, let me walk you through some scripture here. <laughs> God doesn't always get what he wants. He doesn't. And if, if, you, if that, that rattles your theology and changes things, he can get what he wants. He could. He's powerful enough to do it. But in his goodness, he's extended 
I believe, free will to humanity that provides obstacles to his perfect will coming to completion. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have to pray, Lord, your will be done. Mm. Oh man, we could talk. I, I don't want to open a can of worms that I'm not prepared to go down. Uh, but I, I want to say this because it ties into what I'm talking about, the kingdom of God advancing. God doesn't always get what he wants. And I can prove it to you in scripture. Turn with me to 2 Peter 3, 9. Jesus says here, or this is Peter talking about, but we understand that the latter half of this verse, it's talking about the return of the Lord and the coming of the king and the final establishment of his kingdom. And uh, we're talking about God not being slow in coming, but it says that he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If you want to understand what God's will is, his desire is that not a single person would go to hell. Is that not anybody would die and perish without knowing him, but that all would come to repentance. But I, we know through scripture, we know through life, we know through experience that not every single person comes to repentance in the knowledge of God, even though that's his perfect will, even though that's his desire, even though that's what he longs for. And, and, and there's so much more to praying that his will be done. I, you got to understand this isn't just like some kind of impassive prayer of resignation and fa, uh, just fatality here in the sense of, uh, in the sense that, you know, hey, I'm just going to resign that there's nothing I can do to change God's mind. And so God, your will be done right? I, I, I've heard people pray, Lord, your will be done in that sense because they really wanted God to do something else and it didn't happen that way. And they're like, well, I guess there's nothing I can do about it. There's nothing to change. So God, let, let your will be done, I guess. And it's not with this agreement in their heart that what God wants is best. But what Jesus is praying here and the way that he instructs us to pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done, is Lord, you know what's best. It's what Jesus prayed in the garden, right? Not my will, but yours be done. He understood that, God, I really don't want to die on a cross and it really hurt and it be really bad, but I want your will to be done more than my wants that need to pass away, right? And my desires, we could talk so much about this, but I'm going to focus back on my point in tying this together in the fact that God does not desire that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And we understand that repentance is the entryway into the kingdom of God. So when we're praying, God, would you come establish your kingdom and would your will be done? I believe it's appropriate to look at this part of the, the prayer of Jesus as the model prayer and really have an intercessory heart that we would pray for people to enter into the kingdom of God through the gate of intercession, that his will would be accomplished and people would be saved. I don't believe that that's too far of a stretch. I don't believe that that's something that, you know, like, oh man, you got to tie the dots all the way around here. I believe in simple terms, and there's, there's more to this, guys, I understand that, and we're going to unpack it. But the way that the Lord was just leading me this morning was that as we step into what God has for us as a church, for what's next in, in this body and in this family, 
is that the kingdom of God would come, but that people would be saved. More so than I want to see, you know, God do cool things and demons be cast out and sick people healed. I'm all about that. I am. You know, uh, I had a friend pray for my ankle uh, like uh, two weeks ago, and I just had this weird foot. And the next, I mean, like the next morning, it was great. I, was, I just probably played ultimate frisbee too hard, but man, I'm all about that. And like, I'm all about seeing the the handiwork of God and seeing the miraculous take place. And I believe that there is to be an increase of that if we're going to pray that his kingdom come and be established. But moreover than any of that, my heartbeat as a pastor right now is that if we're to see the genuine mark of revival, of the genuine mark of God doing something in our midst, is that the lost would be saved. That his will, as what we read about here in scripture, would be accomplished that people would not perish, but that they would come to repentance. And that his kingdom would be established. And that's my prayer, friends. And what I wanted to do this morning was to invite you to stand with me. And not to be formulaic or anything like that. But I want us as the family of God, with the minds of our friends and our families and this community, those that need Jesus, that we would experience God's heart in the sense that we would ask that God would come establish his kingdom, that people would repent (laughs) and know Jesus. Because we can't fix everything that's wrong. The, the, The drug addictions, the alcohol, the broken homes, everything that is transpiring in this world that is just bad, we don't have an answer for it. But what we do have, an, what, who do we do know is that Jesus can make the wrong things right. When we ask for the kingdom of God to be established, that's asking for a righting of the wrongs. We understand that in heaven, it's perfect. And God's will is that it would be perfect here, right? We understand, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth now, just like it is happening in heaven. We understand that sin is an obstacle to that. The human heart is an obstacle to that. But the wrong things can be made right. And we're just gonna, we're gonna ask God to do that. So Father, Lord, without any pretense, Lord, without any kind of, uh, without anything else, Lord, we come before you and we're asking, Lord, that in this church, in my life, in the life of the families represented here and in this community, Lord, would your name be regarded as holy? Lord, would your kingdom be established? Lord, in fullness, Lord, not just with numbers of people sitting in a church, Lord, but Lord, would your, would your spirit be prevalent? Lord, would, it, would we recognize that you're actually moving? Lord, we're asking that your will would be accomplished. Thank you for listening to this week's message. Our ministry is made possible entirely by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this message and would like to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, visit us online at www.opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give, see our service times, and stay connected with Open Door Church. We hope to see you soon.